Welcome to this edition of In the Author's Voice. I'm Jeff Williams. New York Times best-selling author Steve Barry is out with his new novel, The Lost Order. It's the latest in his Cotton Malone series. I recently talked with Barry about the story and the real-life history of the Knights of the Golden Circle that forms the foundation of the tale. Well, the Knights of the Golden Circle were fascinating. They were the, the largest, most dangerous clandestine organization in American history. It was 40,000 strong. They they served as the uh, the Confederacy's counterintelligence unit, and they were very effective. They infiltrated the North, and they wreaked havoc. They were an organization that was created before the Civil War uh, in 1852. They, hang, they hung around during the war, and they lingered after. And some say they lingered into the 20th century. Some say they, they're still around even today. What makes them really, really fascinating today is that they stole a lot of gold and silver. That was how they financed themselves. They would steal, and they even raided two federal mints. They were very good at stealing, and they took that gold and silver, and they hid it all over the South. They buried it in the ground, and they left a way to find it by looking at trees and rocks and things that they planted and and molded and worked on in the ground. They left clues there. They're very complicated clues. They're, they're, they're not easy to decipher. And treasure hunters have been after that goal for a long time. Uh, there are some who have actually found some of the smaller caches, and the treasure hunt that you referenced in Chapter 1 is based on one of those actual real treasures. Uh, it's, it's a combination of three, actually, three treasure hunts, and I kind of merged them into one for Cotton Malone. And they they actually found a jar of gold coins. And so there is if there is a treasure sitting out there. It is waiting uh, in the ground. It is uh, It's there. Uh, and it was fascinating to me, so that's why I decided to spend Cotton Malone after it. Now there were there there are uh, not to give too much away, but there are some um, some clues, some facts that are unearthed as is is backdrop in the in the Smithsonian. Is there is there truth to the to the connection with the Smithsonian in this in this story? No, not with the knights. No, that's that's part of my ten percent where I trip it up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I try to keep the book about ninety percent to history. I, there's about 10% I have to trip up and because I'm writing a novel and I'm entertaining you. So I had to make that connection there. Though the Smithsonian was quite active in the Civil War, that is true. And it, and it, and it walked a very fine line. It tried to stay neutral during the Civil War. Uh, it served as Lincoln's science advisor, Joseph Henry did, who was secretary of the Smithsonian, but on the same token, he was, he was, uh, he was not very fond of abolitionists. He did not support uh, the North in some respects, and he had sympathies for the South. So he walked a, a really, really fine line between them, and, uh, and I incorporated that in there. Now, the, the other aspect of it with Cotton's ancestor and everything that deals with the Smithsonian is, is my invention. Cotton is drawn into, uh, into this uh, adventure. I think probably in part because of, of the connection to his uh, to his namesake uh, ancestor who was a, a spy during the during the uh, during the Civil War for the for the for the um, Confederates. I guess. So talk to us a little bit about about the adventure and, and what uh, what Cotton finds himself uh, doing in this one. Well, he gets caught up in this whole thing with the Knights of the Golden Circle and and their possibility that they're still out there and the fact that uh, this treasure is still there and I. 
those of you who read the series know that uh, every time they Cotton gets asked, how'd you get that name? He says, long story, long story, and long story. Well, this is the long story. It's the whole novel of how Cotton got his name, and we deal with an ancestor of his that had a connection to the Smithsonian and to the Knights of the Golden Circle, and he gets kind of drawn up into this whole adventure that also has a modern political angle to it with the uh, with the Secretary of, of, of the Speaker of the House and a uh, and a widow of a United States Senator who are, who are, who are fundamentally trying to change America. And all of that gets woven together in this adventure that goes to Arkansas and then up into the Smithsonian and all the museums there, and then ends up in the mountains of New Mexico. You, you crisscross the country and following this kind of his, historic path as they kind of put the clues together and uh, and um, unearth them. And it, it, it seems that over the course of this journey, and, and for those that, have, that are familiar with the series and have read about Cotton's, exploits that I don't know, it seems like we almost see a different side of cotton one that's I don't know more um, I don't know comfortable in his own skin with yeah. who he is that's good that you it's nice that you noticed that he he's changed some through the books yes he has there's been an evolution of cotton uh, he's a much different cotton Malone than he was from the Templar legacy when he was created in each book he's evolved a little bit and here here he's comfortable very much because he's, he's, he's dealing with his past. He's comfortable that Cassiopeia is back in his life, that he's got some stability there, and he's and he's doing something very interesting that, that, that he feels is important. And and Cotton has become a, a much more introspective, a, a little bit more emotion than, than I thought he might have when I created him. Uh, that's probably a lot thanks to my wife Elizabeth. She sort of interjects that. She wants him to be, she wants to warm him up as much as we can. <laughs> there is an interesting. I don't think it's giving too much away. There's an interesting plot twist in this with the, with the uh, with the former president that would be familiar to to yep. those that are, read the series and, and how he injects himself back, back into the political scene. Now this obviously was written written well before the the elections, and not that there's any parallels, but there certainly is a different set of intrigue <laughs> now in the in the uh, uh, now within our our power structures with the with the current. Uh, uh, ad- administration. It, it was really interesting to read about um, to read about some of the early uh, rules of the of the Senate and how they how they found their origin, oh, at least within the historical context. Yeah, of, that was fascinating. That really fascinated me to learn what what most Americans do not know is that you know we talk about gridlock all the time. We hear this word gridlock constantly. What they don't really know is is that the founding fathers actually created a system so that there would be gridlock. That was the whole purpose of creating the United States Senate. They did not trust popular popular rule, and the House, of course, was popular rule elected by the people. Another reason why we have the Electoral College, they did not trust popular uh, 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 election of a president. So they created the Senate as an impediment, as something to slow down the House of Representatives so that they wouldn't go and do something crazy or impetuous. And that was its job. Now, in the beginning, it didn't do it very well. It was kind of a, kind of a nothing body, to be honest with you. It was a, a black hole to get into. It, it, it really didn't do a thing. And then around 1804, 1805, it began to, to spread its wings. And by 1850, it was the most powerful legislative body ever created. And they they did it through their rules that they put in place when they created rules of how debate would go, how you couldn't stop debate, how a filibuster was born. And they set up a situation where one senator could literally shut down the whole government. And that's still true today. 
One senator still can do that even today. It's a little bit different way they do it, but they still have that power today. And it was very fascinating to me, and particularly uh, with the concept of the House and Senate rules and how they put them in place. And that's the constitutional so what of this story, the modern angle of it. Uh, I came across something when I was reading a, a book about how you could neutralize the United States Senate. There's a way to shut them down, just completely neutralize them. And it's, it's constitutional, it's legal, it can be done, and it forms the basis of this novel. So I think the reader is going to be fascinated to learn something about our government that, they, that I'm sure they didn't know. Within the context of the story, and, and you can't help but to, to really wonder about the, the, <laughs> the, whether there's any truth or actuality to, to this. Several of the, of, the, of, the, of the leaders of the order are reaching to the highest power structure of the, of the, of the, of the country, and then you have uh, the kind of the foot soldiers of them that I, you know, I think you can't help but to compare to some of the, the modern day uh, militias that we that we see the freedom fighters that kind of spring up from, from here. How factual based do you think that may be? Well, I was careful when I created that. I knew I had to have a couple of them in positions of influence where they were there, but I was very careful to make sure that they never. You'll notice in the novel they say, you know, we never do anything treasonous. We we work we work within the Constitution and within the rules, and I wanted them to be that way because that was the way the knights were in the beginning, when they first were created in the 1850s. That's the way they were. They wanted to work within the system. They were going to create a golden circle. They were going to take over the Southwest. They were going to go to Mexico, swing around, get Cuba, pick up the Caribbean, add 11 new states to the Union, and change the balance of power. They weren't, they weren't talking about revolution. They weren't talking about overthrowing or creating their own country. They wanted to work within the American framework. And that's the way I wanted to portray them here today, the ones that still are, are out there. Uh, that they were working within the framework in a legal manner, and I was careful careful to make sure of that, and I, I didn't want them to be portrayed because eventually the Knights became what we would call today a terrorist organization, but, but they were serving the South. And we will never know just exactly all the things they did because the records disappeared after the Civil War. We'll never know exactly all the things that they put together. So in their current modern incarnation that I was envisioning, I wanted to make them a constitutional group that we're working within. And this is where this, and even they are taken back by this change in the House rules that I just mentioned a while ago. Even they are a little bothered by that, that it's going a little too far. You know, the Knights had a motto, you know, they want the, the, country, the Constitution as it is and the country as it was. And that's the way they wanted it, and and so I wanted my modern guys to be the same way. There's in aspects of this of this adventure where the where the Smithsonian plays um, some key roles. Are, are you ever um, is it ever uh, ever wonder about what what secrets truly may lie within the archives of the Smithsonian? It, it's fascinating what's up there. I, I serve on the Smithsonian Library's advisory board, so I deal with the 22 libraries that are in the Smithsonian system. Every museum has a library. Every research facility has a library. So we're really kind of at the heart of it. We have all of those documents. Uh, we have over 2 million uh, items in the Smithsonian Libraries. It's one of the largest repositories of knowledge in the world. Now, are there secrets in there? 
Not really. I mean, you'd have to go through the books. I mean, I guess if there's something in one of the books, but everything's cataloged. Everything's there. Is there cool stuff there? Absolutely. But there's not a lot of secrets, per se, because the Smithsonian is very good about organization. (laughs) Everything's cataloged. Everything is is itemized. And they don't throw anything away, and they they keep everything, you know, in a very organized fashion where it can be found. But that doesn't mean there aren't some secrets there. And there actually are a few there, and we explore those in the novel, some real ones. An interesting one is on James Smithson's tomb. There's There's an error on his tomb. Is an actual mistake that was made on his tomb. The question is why, and, and what, what, why was it there? There's a tunnel underneath the, the National Mall that goes from the Smithsonian Castle over to the American History, Natural uh, History Museum, and that is a uh, it goes straight underneath there. It's been there since the 19th century. Uh, that's going to that's in the novel. There's there's all kinds of um, of staircases and all kinds of cool stuff in there. But as to as to being something you know completely secret that no one knows about and, and you know, hidden away in some secret archive, I've not found such a thing in the, in the Smithsonian. But that doesn't stop us novelists from imagining a little bit of it. Yeah. <laughs> you, you talk in the in the book, and I think maybe in the in the notes about uh, about the Smithsonian and how it's how it's funded. How is that? How is that progressing? Yeah, a lot of people don't know that the government only funds 80% of the Smithsonian's budget, and 20% has to come from outside sources, and and that's an enormous amount of money. I mean, that's that's a lot of money that has to be. It's in the hundreds of millions of dollars that have to be raised every year across the institution. For the libraries, it comes to about $3.5 million that we have to raise every year to keep the doors open. Now, everything in the Smithsonian is free. We, nothing is ever charged for. That's part of its original charter. Everything is open and free and always will be. So we have to raise $3.5 million every year. About $2 million of that is not too difficult to raise. We get it from trust and foundations. But that other $1.5 million is tough. We have to go out and, and raise that money every year to keep our libraries functioning and you know, this book I'm hoping is going to draw some awareness to the Smithsonian libraries and the fact that it needs some funding and support. And we have a cool thing called Adopt the Book, which is amazing. You can actually adopt one of our rare books, and it becomes yours in the sense that your your book plate goes in the front. You can bring people to visit it. You can come see it. And it becomes kind of your little baby up there in the Smithsonian libraries. And the cost of that adoption is what it takes to restore the book. Uh-huh. Uh, we ha- I have four up there that I've adopted, and it's really cool. And they can people can find out about that by going to the Smithsonian Library's website and just looking up Adopt a Book. It's a really cool way to support the libraries. Mm-hmm. Well, in the in the in the story, Cotton kind of I don't know if finishes a chapter, but maybe closes a chapter on. Uh, on his on his life after the after the conclusion of this adventure, what's what's next? What's in store for Cotton Malone next? Well, it's already finished. It's in the book. It's in the end. It's going to deal with something very interesting. That's going to be kind of uh, topical next April. Next April's the fiftieth anniversary of the death of Martin Luther King. So the book is going to deal with the Martin Luther King assassination. It's called The Bishop's Pawn, and it it's kind of different for me. It's it's the first time I've done first person, so it's all oh. it's all in Cotton's head next year. And uh, him and I we got really close 
Uh, I've never. Uh, we actually got very close during that the writing of that book, and I enjoyed uh, going into first person for the first time. You're also going to learn how he became a Magellan Billet agent. You're going to mm-hmm. learn how it all started, and uh, you're going to get a very interesting look at the assassination of Martin Luther King that I think uh, may surprise some people. That's author Steve Barry. His new novel is The Lost Order. It's the latest in his Cotton Malone series, and it is available at a bookstore near you or online today. For this edition of In the Author's Voice, I'm Jeff Williams.